and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick, and today I'm here with Percy. Hello. And Todd. Hey there. This week, we are here to talk about plays set in space. Specifically, we're going to be talking about The Absentee by our very own Julia Doolittle and The Last Ship to Proxima Centauri by Greg Lamb. So we wanted to start by just giving you brief sort of summaries of the gist of these plays if you have not read them, although we would certainly encourage you to seek them out and read them. Um, The Absentee by Julia Doolittle is about the operator of a beacon that is very far out in space, um, and it is about her sort of dealing with a with an explosion in the area of space in which she operates um, and sort of dealing with all of the things that sent her to space um, as well as a very persistent campaign volunteer from somebody back on Earth uh, who is running for president of the United States. Something that I just really love about that play that I also think is important for people to know um, is that the operator is alone with her AI that she mm-hmm. sometimes imagines is her dead girlfriend. Yes, that is important. Um, And it is unclear to the audience how much the AI does or does not represent or reflect that girlfriend, um, which I think is very fun. And then in Last Ship to Proxima Centauri by Greg Lamb, this is about 2,000 years after the destruction of Earth um, because we never got our shit together to deal with climate change. Um, A bunch of vessels left Earth um, in the Arclight program, and the one cockpit of the Arclight that we're on um, got stuck uh, in one of the exoplanets' orbits for like 150 years. I think it's Jupiter. I could be wrong. Neptune, um, I think. Neptune. I always mess up my freaking giants, Neptune. Whatever. Anyway, um, they are now arriving. You know, uh, 150 years, 165 years after everyone else did at their new home, Proxima Centauri B. And they're kind of weirded out that when they hail the planet um, and find that there's life on it, like human life that has colonized this planet, that they don't get the warm welcome that they're expecting. They're expected to get like a ticker tape parade. Um, and instead, they're kind of put on hold and told to stay in orbit. Um, while the people of this planet um, that now calls itself Yeni Dunya try to figure out like what to do with all of these American interlopers that have arrived above them. Um, and something that the characters learn very quickly and we, the audience, figure out pretty soon is that um, not every ship made it to Yeni Dunya. In fact, only, um, I think, six other ships made it. Um, and they're from places that don't have the best feelings about Americans um, and white people in general. Um, and so the Americans find themselves uh, sort of negotiating um, the status of being refugees um, in this situation, which is cool and fun and weird. Yeah, so I think I I really enjoyed reading both of these plays. And one of the things I wanted to think a little bit about in this episode is how do you actually, how do you bring to life a a space setting or a spaceship or any of those things on stage? Because it's not something that we see very much in institutional theater in the U.S., where we tend to see street scenes and living room scenes and kitchen scenes and porch scenes and church scenes and that kind of thing, but usually not the more fantastical uh, settings. So what what are some of the ways that uh, writers are thinking about bringing these 
spaces into reality. Yeah, I think um, with Last Ship, um, we're in the cockpit of the Arclight the whole time, um, even though some things happen to the Arclight between Acts 1 and 2 um, in Last Ship to Proxima Centauri. And so we get an instant sense of we are not in uh, a cafe, we're not in a living room, we're not in a dining room, we're in this like very utilitarian vehicle that is much larger than what we're used to. Um, which I find very exciting. Yeah, the absentee also, the absentee has a little bit more fluidity in it because a lot of the characters appear on stage but are actually speaking from other places or are in some cases like the AI you mentioned, Todd, not actually you know physical people at all. But mm-hmm. the core, very similarly, the core setting is... The cockpit of this, or I guess cockpit's probably not technically the right word, but the like command like, like a sta- center, like a station. Yeah, the control room of this remote outpost space station, and we stay there pretty much for the whole play. Yeah, I think it's interesting that like that is kind of your only option for a place set in space, unless you want to do like a moonwalk sort of situation. Only because I feel like space looks in reality probably not very interesting <laughs> like the actually being like actual, in space like actual space um <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think one of the nice things about it is that it does in some ways it's very practical because from just the little bit i've read and seen about for example people living on the iss you know your world is very small there's like you can't go a lot of places when you're in space but it also on a design level one of the nice things about that is it turns it into a like unit set more or less you know there's a mm-hmm. there are good reasons for everything for everything in the play to happen on that command deck because there's only two people and most of the things they interact with in their day are there are right <laughs> so, there. like yeah. why would we see anything else um Yeah, and kind of similarly in the absentee, the operator spends all her time on the control room there. So that's where pretty much all the action takes place. It's interesting that in plays that are like often sort of speculative or working in this sort of like not attempting to do realism genre that there is like there is this limitation of also like there are very few places where humans can survive in space. And there is like a consideration in all of these plays about like what does that mean? And like, what do you have to do in order to do that? And like all, all of that sort of thing. So I think it's also interesting that like the location of a ship cockpit and rendering it on stage also invites questions about like um, gravity and oxygen and like, what are the tangible like ways that these people survive day to day? Like there's a lot of jokes in Proxima Centauri about um, like when you come out of uh, the like thousand year, not thousand year, it's shorter than that. But the no, very, it's very 2000 long, years. It's very you. long. Um, I get it confused with um, a novel that I read recently called Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky, where it's like 10,000 years that you're in stasis, which is a very good book if you haven't read it. But anyway, um, there's like jokes about them giving you like Starbucks because the ship is from Seattle um, mm-hmm. <laughs> when you wake up and things like that. So I think that's also an interesting thing um, is this sort of like we're in this very sort of no pun intended, alien world to us in the lives that we live in real life. But also there is very much a lot of consideration to like, how do you survive in this place? And like, what is the human sustainability? Like these very mundane considerations, um, which I think is interesting. Well, and a funny thing about the the Starbucks moment, 
um, is when they're revived, they get they have the option to get Starbucks if they want. But immediately after that is offered, we hear due to the limitations of space travel, like it will be served <laughs> at room temperature and with like corn sweetener um, because there is nothing to help <laughs> with that because like we couldn't keep a refrigerator on this ship because why would we? Um, which I think is very funny. I was also thinking, Nick and Percy, you were talking about um, needing to be in like cockpits and control stations. And I immediately thought of there's a play um, by James Kennedy that was in the 2016 Humana Festival that was this little short um, called Trudy, Carolyn, Martha and Regina travel to outer space and have a pretty terrible time there, um, which is delightful, um, but also is set in the cockpit of a spaceship and then someone gets like spaced from it, if I remember properly. It's very funny, um, but <laughs> I hadn't considered the need to um, show so quickly and so succinctly like we are in space. <laughs> you probably have an idea of what this could look like, mm-hmm. um, which is just very interesting that like, like you're not doing Star Wars on stage unless you're doing Shakespeare's Star Wars, I guess. But that's got a very different vibe to it. Um, mm. But one of the one of the things that I learned during our production of Last Ship to Proxima Centauri, spoiler alert, we did it at Portland Stage not too long ago, um, is that every designer was like really pumped about designing a show in space. Um, and this is from like our scenic designer who at the design meeting was talking about like Rogue One versus Battlestar Galactica versus like all of these other things, um, which was very exciting to hear. And we went in this like utilitarian um, sort of alien esque in terms of the construction of the set, uh, like military grade cockpits, because that's what they were like. It's a freighter. Like it is it is something that needs to like. It was built quickly. It needs to work. It's not the Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's not going to look like that because it's not this, like, post-scarcity beautiful thing that people are intentionally living on. It is something that people happen to be living on and only two at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they also wanted it to feel really cramped and really, like, tight and densely located. Um, but also, when we get to Yeni Dunya and we meet some of the people of this new planet, our costume designer was also really excited about like, okay, what does fashion look like 200 years from now if we pull from like these five sources or these six sources as like points of uh, reference? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we make something that feels both like very alien in terms of our culture and our dress um, but also has some familiarity to it. Um, and like, I'll I'll send some pictures to Percy to put in the show notes, but there were these like gold shoes that everyone fell in love with that were just like really cool, really weird kicks um, that the Proximans wear. Yeah, well, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about like sci-fi and speculative fiction is that it opens up groom for artists to not be purely mimetic you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like this is because we're imagining so wildly it only has to be barely referencing real life not you know so nobody can look at it and be like that's wrong that's that's not what that person would actually be wearing (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so yeah yes i think artists often love that kind of challenge or that kind of opportunity 
And I wish that more I wish that more theaters would take a swing at that. I know we've said that before on this podcast. This is not a recurring theme. I mean, yeah, in it's fact, a recurring theme. I think it was the last play discussion episode of season one. <laughs> Where we were like, put, put ghosts, ghosts in your goddamn plays, you cowards. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, well, it's because because I also think that there's like, like, I think aesthetically theaters who tend to do this sort of thing, like um, something that we talked to or thought about while preparing for this episode is that um, high school production of Alien that they did the play. They just adapted Alien for the for the stage and got in a lot of trouble for it. But also, I think it was very cool. So like whatever. And they write mm-hmm. a lot in like the various like interviews and reviews and whatever that were written about it, like very much like making stuff out of trash and using like all of this stuff that they had around and repurposing things and all of this stuff. Like I think it was very much like a like a scrappy aesthetic that tends to come into play for theaters who do this kind of work partially i think probably because they tend to be theaters that don't have a lot of money um but also this was um, the north bergen high school drama club which is so cool yes um but yeah like i they talked about using like old milk crates i think to make the like interior of the nostromo and stuff like that like very very cool well, and I recall um, when that production happened and when all of the like hoopla was happening on Twitter, I remember um, Mac Rogers, who was recently on the podcast, friend of the, um, <laughs> friend of the pod, um, talking about how like his whole career um, people had pushed against doing like spectacle sci-fi on stage. And he had kind of become convinced that you couldn't do it. Um, and so that's part of like how the Honeycomb trilogy was built as like a living room drama about an alien invasion and what that means. But he was like, if high schoolers can make this happen, like, why can't we? Why can't we make something that's like beautiful and terrifying and uh, not necessarily like something that doesn't have to look schlocky, um, something that can look very exciting and intentional and like still be like, oh, my God, there's aliens on stage in this sci fi show. Yeah, I think there's a there's absolutely in addition to a fear about putting ghosts on stage, there's also a fear about, yeah, like doing zero gravity or like figuring out what a spacewalk would look like theatrically. But like, I don't know, I feel like there's so many viewpoint it i use uh, use harnesses whatever like there's so many cool ways that you could do that we suspend our disbelief every time we go to the theater (laughs) yeah i was i was going to say i think it's actually to me it's not even about it not looking schlocky or or maybe i have a different like uh reference point in my mind for what schlocky is but it's like you you could actually do it by not by being creative Mm -hmm. like like the the trick i think is to not compete with film yeah. You know, yeah. like the looking at the pictures from the North Bergen High School Drama Club production of Alien, you know, it, it is like very low budget. And I can see uh, Xavier Perez in the Xenomorph uh, outfit. And it's like clearly put together with what they had. But I think the charm of theater is actually in the the reenactment, the ritual, the the coming together around it. So a spacewalk doesn't have to involve like elaborate flying mechanisms you, you yeah. can if you want but it can be much more simple and much more beautiful because like percy said we suspend our disbelief every time anyway so why not lean into that 
When I'm looking at a picture right now of their rendition of the chestburster scene, which is has very big like Audrey two energy. Like if we can embrace like puppetry and all these like there's a mm-hmm. hand underneath the chestburster, like very clearly like <laughs> uh, pushing it up into the uh, person's face. Like, mm-hmm. well, and. I'm also thinking of um, Nick. I think you also saw Six Rounds of Vengeance when Vampire Cowboys yeah. did it back in the day, forever ago. Um, but like something that was really exciting about the staging of that was there's this like fun because it's Kui Gwen. Um, there's like a fun kung fu fight in the middle of it, and in order to do some of the kung fu moves that they wanted to do, they had like set up this convention that sometimes actors are in scenes and sometimes they wear these like black one piece jumpers. And when they do that, they're like special effects. And so to do this cool, like I'm flying across the stage, kicking this giant monster thing, someone hopped literally into another person's arms and that person just carried them across the stage and like did the kick. And it was fun because we had built this theatrical vocabulary for like, I ignore people when they're just in these black outfits and I embrace characters when they're in their character. Um, get up and like you could do that for zero g like you want to float in the absentee like cool some people pick that person up great done and it, yeah and it's it's really not hard to do and there are whole theater cultures around the world that operate like this that when i saw six rounds of vengeance it reminded me of like bunraku style puppetry mm-hmm. which does a you know does a very similar thing with black clad uh assistant the second and third puppeteers are all covered in in black so that they quote unquote become invisible and of course you can see them the whole time but it's a convention that people understand it's just the you know the western theater obsession with realism and like attempting to present the real on stage ever since the early 20th century we've been stabbing ourselves in the foot repeatedly (laughs) yeah well and i wonder i think it's probably true that the hesitation to do a lot of plays in this sort of genre is partially i think because it requires you to think outside the real in a lot of ways so it is sort of just like oh like let's just not let's just not but shifting gears i think the thing that is interesting about a lot of plays that are set in space is that a lot of them have either like ship navigation software or some kind of like communicating with somebody who is not physically there as a core part of its conceit or you're dealing with AIs like in the absentee. And I think a lot of plays that have AIs or have these sort of like robotic or, you know, non-human elements are exploring something really cool because like nine times out of 10, you have to have a person play them, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Last Ship has like Lana, which is a new Siri sort of thing. She does, uh, I think it's logistics and navigations something, assistant. Um, But she doesn't have like an intelligence the way um, the beacon does um, in uh, the absentee. Um, And I think there's so many things about beacon that are like super, super cool to me. Um, I'm... I'm sure this is some of where it comes from, um, knowing Julia, but we haven't talked about this specifically. But like to me, the beacon is very much um, the the robot who is the ship in Outlaw Star, um, mm-hmm. which is like a very weeby point of view to come at this from. <laughs> but like there's a lot about this like. I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff about her, but also like the way that I imagine Beacon working within 
um, the command center is um, in similar ways to the way that this girl operates in Outlaw Star, um, who like is her own person and is also the ship and mm-hmm. who we need to have the ship run. And if you piss off, won't run the ship properly because she has feelings and she has thoughts. Yeah. And like a central thing that that play is exploring um, is very much like what is the relationship that somebody who's isolated builds with their with their AI and there's absolutely like like Beacon has very like utilitarian functions on the ship in terms of like you know this is how much energy there is or what that's a you know what I mean um but is also like pretends to be Bob Ross and streams an episode of the joy of painting for operator as she's falling asleep like there's um there's all these spectrums and then as Todd mentioned before absolutely the like sort of looming um question about Beacon's proximity to Chance, who is the operator's ex-girlfriend or dead girlfriend, not ex-girlfriend. I guess also ex. <laughs> a little Te- column, a technically little also an ex. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that also shifts us into like thinking about some of the because I think a lot of plays that are set in space um, tend to explore sort of similar themes or ask similar questions, although they all certainly answer them very different ways. And like the question of like our relationship with AI and what happens to us when we're in this very deep sort of isolation is one of the big questions because very frequently the protagonist of a play that is set in space has like a reason that they left earth or, um, you know, something that has driven them to this very, very isolated thing. Like the operator is sort of escaping this, um, very tragic and traumatic thing that happened to her. Whereas Proxima Centauri there, <laughs> um, the, the earth is not habitable. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, I wonder if there's almost a, now, now I'm just riffing, so feel free to say no. But I wonder <laughs> if there's almost a, a connection there. It's, I have a friend uh, who's very interested in like theater and the non-human, and there's almost a the, the idea that I that sense of isolation. You know, it, it strikes me that historically we're at an interesting moment where we're renegotiating our relationships with the non-human, both kind of in the future sense of the rise of AIs and increasing like technology, technologization. That's not a word. Um, Could the, pervasive, be. the pervasiveness of technology in our lives on one mm-hmm. hand. And on the other hand, <laughs> and on the other hand, uh, climate change, our relationship with all the non-human like natural systems of our mm-hmm. world. Um and space is sort of the in in some ways, particularly in the absentee, I feel like space becomes a sort of in-between place between the earth that's been left behind and the sort of like technological future that you live within, but is still not fully accessible. For the audience at home, I'm making a weird groping gesture to illustrate the way that ais are like not uh you know physical presence mm-hmm. yeah not physical presences and not like operating in the same way that human beings do i think um just like jumping back to like the things that space plays can explore a little um something that I was reminded of um, when we started talking about these is just how space is always trying to kill you. Mm. Um, Like there's 
I, I remember reading an article when like the the blue Jupiter or what no blue horizon I don't know um, when when all the billionaires were trying to get their dicks into space um, that this scientist um, was like look Jeff Bezos is not going to live in space like as much as he would like to um, the thing about space is space is always trying to kill you and the practicalities of surviving in space indefinitely to just live there are not viable with the technology that we have now it's just like it's not going to happen in his lifetime it's not going to happen in your lifetime don't worry they will die on this planet the same way that you will um <laughs> which I, there was there was sort of a piece to that for me but i was thinking uh particularly with like when the beacon um becomes unlivable um at a certain point uh, within the absentee and while it doesn't feel like this is the tension necessarily in last ship to proxima centauri the arc light does get damaged and we are made aware that it will not be viable for mm-hmm. much longer and so at the end of the first act they make the decision to like park it on the planet and i think there's something interesting about that tension of like literally everything in your environment wants you dead yeah Um, Like what the universe would like the most is to like normalize the heat in this area and normalize the vacuum. And the way it does that is like you die. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's an interesting tension that the absentee plays with and that comes up in last ship, but isn't like a a focused theme. Because I think there are like two ways that plays about space tend to think about space and the absentee and Proxima Centauri do both of them. Whereas I think space can be, as Nick said, like an in-between space or like a place to get away from uh, Earth and to go very, very far away and be isolated. Or it represents sort of the way to get to something new, which mm-hmm. is what it is in Proxima Centauri, which opens up a lot of questions about like, um, like a lot of plays about space tend to be about colonization um, or tend to be about like, how do we think about this sort of new frontier, quote unquote, in a way that is like, how do we think about that and also think about settler colonialism and what are the ways that those overlap with each other and how do we think about those two things at the same time um which is i think in part a lot of what proxima centauri is thinking about um Mm -hmm. is like what does it mean to establish something new and all that like there's a there's a play in space by phaedra michelle scott called unity uh that was written for a, a thesis project at umass last year that is about a um a video game called Unity uh based on so like uh, the people of Earth had basically sent this person called the Companion out to like explore a new planet and see if it was habitable and that person had all of these logs and then something went terribly wrong and it's they sort of built this like space exploration program with an alliance between the Earth and Mars um and residents of those two planets to like find new places to to live um and it's very much thinking about like do we go in and violently colonize these new planets? Do we sort of establish dominance and like say, okay, like we have to stake our claim because space is so hostile and we have no other choice and we have to keep living. Um, Or is there a way to do it that is gentler and that is like Mm -hmm. more diplomatic and like really, and I think a lot of plays about space explore that question of like, how do, how do we approach the like finding a new world? Because a lot of plays in space tend to be like the earth is no longer an option or like, I don't want to be there anymore. Um. Mm -hmm. Well, and like tying back to Lancer briefly, like one of the ideas that's posed by the lore within the world is that the second committee 
um, which we're like in the era that players are playing, we're in the third committee. But in the second committee, they had this very like one fascist, but two like eco-fascist human expansion and survival at all costs Mm -hmm. um, sort of mindset and like destroyed the biomes on a number of planets so that they could be habitable for you know carbon-based uh humans um and that's like a thing that this game also grapples with but that plays think about and like comes up in last ship and also we spend no time on and there's a lot of things going on in that play like there's so many things going on in that play um but the one of the like blips that we like just scoot over is the people of Yeni Dunya have like terraformed the planet that had a poisonous atmosphere and like poisonous flora and fauna for humans and have destroyed those things such that human life could survive or adapted them. And that's kind of chilling when you think about it in the yeah. space of like a hundred years. It's deeply chilling. Like, you know, is there a kinder and gentler colonialism? Maybe I'm going to go with not, not really, but I'm not, not an expert on that. <laughs> doesn't that also come up in a play that we talked about in our Apocalypse Plays episode? It doesn't that also come up in Walden by Amy Berryman? That question of like, or I think that's more about Earth, but. The, well, so, uh, yeah, Walden is really concerned. Walden is really thinking more about the ethics of colonialism or, or like theoretical space colonization as a question of is there a defeatism to that of you know the attitude of just like oh well earth is earth is going to be unlivable so the best solution is clearly to just go out and do the same thing but on a different planet rather than Mm -hmm. figuring out ways to actually make earth habitable which is i think a good point because any any technology sufficient to terraform a planet to make it stable for human life presumably could be used to remedy some problems on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it brings up that there's a Carl's, I think it's a Carl Sagan quote that talks about Mars specifically. And it's basically like, listen, if there are organic beings on Mars, even if they're like microbes, then those are Martians and Mars belongs to them. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that's a Carl Sagan quote. I will try to double check. But, you know, that is a a thing to consider in all of these narratives about human ex, about human expansion. I think it is very comparable to, you know, the westward expansion and colonization of the con- what is now the continental U.S. Like that's the the whole idea behind the final frontier of Star Trek. Yeah, it's very much about like these plays that are very or these stories that are very much about human survival it does it does sort of fit the question of like <laughs> what does that survival come at the cost of mm-hmm. well and in this in this mode um like i feel like speculative fiction and science fiction is so often um like it's never about wouldn't it be cool if we had laser guns and it is <laughs> always about like how can we look at the problems of today with a different lens and see if there are other maybe better futures? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like so often, like as we, as we felt with our put ghosts in your goddamn place, you cowards episode, I feel so many theaters brush off sci-fi plays because they see them as like 
cool, you have laser guns, and which there, there are no laser guns in either of these shows. Um, sorry. But, <laughs> sorry. Spoiler. Um, laser guns in your goddamn plays, you cowards. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, they're, as all good plays are, they are plays about like the human experience and asking big questions about like what it means to be um, that happen to be set in space. And so, like, for me, the absentee, um, we we eventually learn or come to realize that the absentee is operator. Um, and in some literal senses, she is being asked to be an absentee voter because she's registered in Florida. Um, and we all know the Sunshine State is a, a nightmare for democracy, um, but <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines. Um but she's also someone who has become absentee from her life. Mm-hmm. She has like fled her life and the tragedy that befell her and her girlfriend um, and has like moved to the cold reaches of space um, because it was the place that she could like deal with her grief. Um, and La Ship um, is very much and like Greg says this all the time. Um, it is a play that was very much inspired by the border crisis um, of 2018 in the States. Um, and he wanted to invent a like fabulated situation where Americans could see themselves on like the wrong side of that border crisis. And like, what does it mean if while fleeing something terrible that you could not avoid – um, you are detained, you are interrogated, you are treated like a criminal. Um, what would that look like and what would that be like? And like it happens to take place on a spaceship, but that doesn't make it any less relevant. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the important thing about that is that not only is it a way of sort of appreciating and like thinking about things that are that we deal with right now in a somewhat distanced way or in a way that like we don't realize that we're thinking about it until we're thinking about it. But also it like, mm-hmm. because they're so future oriented, it really opens the door to saying like, okay, now that I've thought about this, what does that mean? And how can we like, how can we pivot? What is the other, op- what is the other option? And sometimes the play like presents that option and sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, I think that's a really, a really cool and powerful thing. Um, like I know a lot of people are turning to like Octavia Butler's books right now to be like, holy shit she predicted everything (laughs) what the fuck do we do um yeah well and um in addition to like giving us space to to think about like how we could approach these problems differently like how could we make these problems not the problems um and maybe this is me being sappy but glenn um who is calling operator um and trying to get her to vote for his candidate there's this point where she finds that like voting as a tool is useless because like all politicians are shit and like blah, blah, blah. And Glenn goes on this like a little rant that always makes me tear up a little bit. I'm kind of tearing up now, but he talks about like all of the things that like voting has achieved. Um, And some of them are things from our past Um, But a number of them are things from Glenn's past, but our future is like things we could achieve. Um, And geez, uh, (laughs) it's something that like is so powerful and moving and motivating for like there are things we can accomplish, like using the tools that we have. We don't need to to wait for 
you know, a, a terraforming device that will help us take carbon out of the air and put it into the earth or some bullshit or launch it into the sun or whatever. <laughs> like there's things that we could do now mm-hmm. using the tools that we have now in order to make a better world for ourselves. Um, and I think like that speech is something that we workshopped that play back in like um, 20 spring 2018 maybe um and is just like that speech stays with me all the time um and is just like such a powerful and moving thing um and to not just think about like what can we do but like here are tools here are tools and you have them like if you want a better world today here's some stuff you can do yeah i feel like that interplay of like the fantastical and the mundane is really core to the way that both of these plays work and the how powerful both of these plays are because there is that sense of familiarity despite the fact that you know you're in the cockpit of a spaceship i get i guess i will say it's i love speculative fiction that imagines like you're saying todd imagines what the future could be in ways that are good and bad mm-hmm uh, like, 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 imagines both good and bad futures. I do think there is also sometimes a risk um, of, like, of doing this, and I think it would be maybe irresponsible not to point to the risk as well, which is the bad, um, or not even necessarily bad. They're not. It's not inherently bad, but the risk of like clumsily metaphorizing real world problems you know what i mean um like there's a there's a lot of not a lot of i've seen things that definitely like take up queerness or like gender and think about it through like aliens or androids or like non-human things which like can be really powerful and resonant but also can like imply kind of bad things about (laughs) about Mm. queer people or trans people Um, yeah and and there's a long history i think as well around race yeah um you know particularly that just if you look at star trek the way various alien species are kind of racially coded particularly early earlier in the series whatever the plural of, you know, like in the original series and the next generation and so on. Um, and I, and I do think that is the one kind of not probably not the one, but one significant real risk that, that comes with trying to talk about something real without talking about it. Um, mm. And I think that's one reason that the absentee and last ship to Proxima Centauri both work pretty well is because they they are actually talking about that thing you know what i mean mm. like like the the absentee is about uh like you said being an absentee from your own life and like checking out rather than engaging and last ship to proxima centauri is actually about like the violence of borders period but also touches on specifically like race relations in the U.S. in the 21st century, Um, the way it's plotted. That specifically is discussed. Um, And I think that's to those plays credit rather than being like, we're going to introduce a species of aliens that are 
made up, but we're going to use them as a metaphor for black people, which is always bad, I think. Maybe not always, but I shouldn't take the authority to say that, but I think always very risky. How about that? Mm-hmm. I think it definitely can be. I like, I don't know, part of me is thinking about uh the the broken earth trilogy by mm-hmm. nk jemison um which very much like is about race and is not about race at the same time mm-hmm. like is about race in america and is also like about magic science fiction on a planet that might not be the earth but might be um in a way that's very intense like there's i don't i don't know there's there's just stuff in that series that like it's so much it's a yeah. lot. Um, and it's great. Everyone, sh- if you have not read The Broken Earth, go read The Broken Earth. She won three Hugos in a row for this trilogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go read it. It's great. Um, I think it just needs to be like very intentional. But I also think like that that book series, like which is specifically kind of doing what you're saying, um, is also doing this thing where like the metaphor is also real. Well, yeah, I was going to say... I I actually kind of disagree in Mm -hmm. that I think what Jemison does in that is is create a like speculation that is about like power and creating an underclass and like using that under and like physically violently exploiting that underclass. And I think, you know, because she is an American black woman and because we are reading it in the U.S., it is inextricable from the history of racism and slavery in the US but I don't think she's actually I don't think she's directly metaphorizing it as much as playing with the same power structure I mean I think there's also some stuff in there about like Roga mm-hmm. and the way yeah. that that like I think there's very specific things in there that are I don't know it's whatever but um I think but I think what is successful about it, which is also what you pointed to about the absentee and about last ship, is that like there is a metaphor and the metaphor is also real in the play. Like they talk about real things in the play as well as this metaphor. And I think in that trilogy, there is like a metaphor of like, is this institutionalized racism in the US? And also, is this institutionalized racism in this world? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like it doesn't just stay as metaphor. And I think the thing that you were talking about was the Star Trekky like, oops, all of these people are just weird. Right. Yeah, no, I, I guess yeah. I, I guess my thing would be like, I don't think it actually is a metaphor. It is just the same situation in a speculative world. And and again, like I said, written by somebody who has that lived experience. So it is it's in it's baked into it, but it's different to me. When I, when I say it's a metaphor, I'm talking about like the but I've, oh God, I haven't watched enough Star Trek to like, like the say very this. obvious like this is very clearly coded this way, yeah, but we're like, not going to say anything about it. Yeah, like I think the Bajorans, if I'm remembering this correctly, like watching Star Trek, the like Bajorans who are these aliens feel like very clearly a commentary on like uh, the colonization of Israel and like Palestinian relations and, but it's like, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to be weirdly like, these two peoples have religious conflicts and one is an underclass and everybody's suspicious of them and calls them to... And it's like that, like, you know, I think that kind of metaphor is very difficult to pull off as opposed to like 
exposing the actual thing, mm -hmm. maybe yeah. in a context that is not what the th not the context of the thing in our world. Yeah, I think I think it's like I think you can tell the difference between somebody who's trying to make a point um, versus somebody who is exploring. Because I think a lot of these plays, I don't want to like state that they come from a place of anxiety because like who am I to decide that that's where they're coming from? But like um, like they come from an emotional place because a lot of these plays deal with things that are really hard to think about. Like climate disaster is a very difficult thing to think about. And a lot of these plays are thinking about what do we, like what do what do we do if this comes to pass um so i feel like you can tell when somebody is really genuinely like oh this is coming from like a lived experience that i have or a fear that i have or anger that i have and i'm exploring that through the speculative fiction whether it be like a cyberpunky like the world is horrible and the government surveils us even more than they already do um, or like a solar punky, like, you know, we've healed our relationship with nature and everything is Art Nouveau and beautiful, um, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Um, for the next two weeks, we'll be finishing up our Lancer campaign and then we'll have a, a preview of what's to come in season three. Hooray. Woo. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us, and getting access to our patron-only bonus content, at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> no, okay, we won't do that. <laughs>